So when you're telling a story, and that's what we've been reading, we've been reading John's story of Jesus coming into the world. When you're telling a story, it makes a big difference whether you know the end of that story or not. Or whether your, um, your listeners know the end of that story or not. I remember when the movie Titanic came out. And we all joked about it, right? We said, I wonder what happens in that story. Or people would they'd think it was really funny to go around and be like, hey, let me spoil it for you. The boat sinks. Because it's the Titanic the whole time you're watching it. And, and yet, amazingly, the movie, the movie did really well. The movie did really well because they understood that the whole time that you're watching it, you know what's going to happen. You, the, the story is told with that in mind, the fact that you know what's coming. It would be very different if you were telling a story and people didn't know the ending. They didn't know what was going to happen. So what you want to do then is you want to build the suspense. You want to build up the suspense so that, so that when that moment comes, it's a surprise, it's a shock. You didn't see it coming. But if you already know that it's coming, then you tell the story in a very different way. So John wrote this gospel in around A.D. 90. And he's writing to people who already know what happens. He's writing to people who already know what happens with Jesus. So our story today is written with that in mind. The story is about to take a dark turn. As we see the council of the Jews, they meet to discuss what to do about Jesus. Tensions are going to be rising. The plots of evil men are going to be revealed over the next couple chapters as we move into the last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. But we already know what happens. We already know what's coming. And John knows that. So he's not trying to just build worry in his readers. He's not trying to build the suspense and the anxiety of the moment into this. No, what he does is he shows the great irony in all of this plotting against Jesus. The great irony. The way that he tells this story today in particular, what it does is it highlights the evil nature of these men and it also highlights the uselessness of their planning. It highlights their evil nature and the uselessness of their planning. It reminds us a little bit of Psalm 2. If you remember Psalm 2 where the people's plot in vain, but God laughs. And so as we read this here in just a minute, there should be mixed feelings as you and I read this together. There should be feelings of grief, and feelings of horror at what these men are willing to do when they are faced with the truth of who Jesus is. But there should also be awe. There should be worship. Because the best laid evil plans of men only end up serving God's purposes. So let's read, beginning in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, 
But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Okay, so this morning... Our first point here as we look at this is the question that starts Psalm 2. The question that starts Psalm 2 is, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? That's going to be our first point here as we look at John 11. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why? Look at this. So you see two different groups here that we can ask this question about. First, there are the ones who saw the miracle with Lazarus. While many people believed in Jesus, that is, they saw the miracle and they understood who Jesus was and they believed in him. While many people did that, there were some who just went to the Pharisees instead. As spectators, you know, we watch that and we might scratch our heads. You just might wonder, you know, how could... How could they watch Jesus bring a man to life like this? How could they see Mary and Martha, see everything that happened with Lazarus? How could they do that? And instead of believing in Jesus, they decide it would be better to go and tell the Pharisees. When everybody already knows the Pharisees are out for Jesus. We have to ask, how could you do that? Why would you do that? But if those guys are bad, the ones who saw the miracle and went and told the Pharisees, they're really nothing compared to this group that we see next. Because from the Pharisees, we see the chief priest added. And then what they do is they gather this council. This is likely a gathering of the Sanhedrin, that is the council of the Jews. It's made up mostly of Sadducees. There are the wealthy men from the priestly families. This shows us that the stakes here are really high. They're as high as they can be. The Pharisees actually, interesting side note, the Pharisees are actually a minority group in the Sanhedrin. They they don't carry the power in the Sanhedrin. But the Pharisees do carry a ton of influence with the regular people because the Sadducees are generally very wealthy. They're the elite. They're the more politically minded. uh, I had mentioned before that many of the Sadducees, they don't even believe that, that, that God is real. The, the, the theology and doctrine of the Sadducees can, can run a very wide gamut. Elite call for the death of Jesus. What happened is that the Sanhedrin has to have a council like this one. And then they have to pass judgment on Jesus, which they're about to do. And then they can take that judgment that they've passed saying, we, the people of, of the Jews, want to see Jesus executed in Rome, which, of course, they ultimately will do. So, in other words, the meeting we're seeing today, it has to happen. It's an essential step in the process of Jesus being crucified by Rome. 
So this meeting had to happen. Isn't it interesting? It happens in response to Jesus resurrecting somebody from the dead. The response to his power over death is this step that's going to lead to his own death. But look at what happens when the Sanhedrin meets. The first thing they do is they ask a question. The ESV says, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. This question, it needs to be read in response to the fact that they've already been doing things. So it's really, what are we to do? What are we doing here? Like, what's happening? Nothing is working to stop this guy. What are we to do? If we don't change, they're not working. Look at what they say. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. You just want to say, now hold on a minute. I mean, here they are admitting to the signs that Jesus has done. For this man performs many signs. Even saying, if he were to continue the way that he's going, everybody is going to believe in him. He's that believable. He's doing signs nobody else can do. They're done denying that. You just want to read it and you go, I mean, if that's the case, then why not stop? And why not consider that maybe, just maybe, as he is? Why wouldn't we do that? They've admitted that nothing they've done so far has worked. They have tried tricking Jesus, they've tried killing Jesus already. They've tried covering up his miracles. They've tried intimidating the witnesses to his miracles. Nothing is working. And now with Lazarus, because he just raised a person from the dead. Just glance down a few paragraphs here, and what do you find? Just a few paragraphs later, you find that the chief priests, they're too. They sense that they are losing all control here. And who are they losing it to? They're losing it to Jesus. They are losing complete control of the situation. And you want to go, why would you not stop for a moment and think maybe what he's saying is true? Maybe we to him because he actually has control. What was supposed to happen? But they can't do that. This is what it is to be blind. Our own desires can blind us to seeing God standing right in front of us. This is that picture again of the so-called shepherds of Israel fighting for control of Israel with the shepherd. 
Because their desires, what they want, to what's actually right in front of their faces. You see it right here. We get part of the answer at the end of verse 48. Why do they do this? And the Romans will come and they'll take away both our place and our nation. Worried about. If Jesus has his way, then it's going to upset this relationship that the has with Rome. And the Sanhedrin has a good relationship with Rome. They're doing really well off of Rome. Rome is letting them run things, and they are doing just fine. If Jesus has his way, though, then the status quo here for that they have benefited from so much, it's going to be a notice. If they, let, if they let Jesus continue to do this, people are going to follow him. They're going to start calling him the Christ. They're going to start calling him the king. That's going to get Rome, Rome's attention, and Rome is going to come, and they're going to quash Israel. Their desires, their comfort, is the way that they, they have built them for themselves, what they are used to, blinds them from seeing Jesus. And how much does it blind them? It blinds them so much. They're willing to basically fulfill the opposite of what the Scriptures say they ought to do as shepherds. They become the fulfillment of Psalm 2. But that's only part of the answer here. That Rome would come in and it would upset things. Because again, the next question you have to ask is, like, hello, are you really worried about Rome? Is somebody from the dead? Perhaps he would have a solution for Rome too? And at the very top here, as we ask why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain, we, we come to the top of the Sanhedrin and we meet this. Caiaphas was the high priest. John says he was the high priest that year. I think what he's doing there is drawing attention to the year that Jesus died. That fateful year, he was the high priest. He's going to lead this council where he thinks it ought to go. And, he, and, and, and the council, quite frankly, they're happy for the guidance. This is how desperate they are. They just want it to stop. They want Jesus to stop. It's funny because I know that some of you, and I know many Christians, have this story of Jesus for so long. And what they really wanted is they just wanted Jesus to stop. <laughs> they wanted Jesus to leave them alone. They wanted to try and control Jesus, quash Jesus, Jesus. They wanted him to leave them alone. That's what's happening here. They're willing to take Caiaphas's advice because they just want Jesus to go away. Because Jesus upsets the way they have built their lives. He starts off. He says, "You know nothing." Well, I mean, that's kind of rude, right? <laughs> nothing. It, Apparently, though, it is. That's the way the Sanhedrin were. I read this week that the Jewish historian Josephus, he said the Sadducees, uh, even amongst themselves, are rather boorish in their behavior. And their conversation with their peers are as rude as to aliens. So he's just kind of a jerk. I mean, that's... You don't know a thing. 
You guys are a bunch of idiots. You're clearly not doing anything right here. But he's got a point about it too, doesn't he? I mean, what they're doing is just, it's not working. They have not been So he introduces an idea into the conversation. They don't know a thing. They clearly don't know that one man should die for the people, not that the whole We have seen not everybody is completely against Jesus yet. There are those who are not. There are those who are going, well, maybe we should. We've seen these people before. That's who Caiaphas is talking to here. You don't know that it would be better for one person to die than for the whole nation to die. So they're sitting here. They're worried about the noise. They're worried about, oh my goodness, what's going to happen with Rome? Caiaphas cuts through. He says, hey, it would be better. Everybody just needs to agree with me right now. It would be better that Jesus is killed than that Rome destroys us. That's what we're going with, guys. It would be killed than that Rome would destroy us. You can't argue with it. One person instead of all of us, yes. We're going to skip John's commentary for just 51 and 52. We're just going to jump down to what he says is the result. He says, so from that day, they made plans to put him. That's what happens from this. Caiaphas cuts through the noise, goes, come on, don't be idiots. We don't all want to die. Kill Jesus. Why do they rage? Why do they plot in vain? This is awful to see, isn't it? But it is reality. Sometimes I think we can get focused on how reasonable, how rational, how logical, and how historical Jesus and the Christian faith are in Scripture, but we also need to see what Scripture says about the human heart. These men weren't denying Jesus' power. They weren't denying that He raised Lazarus did believe that if he continued, he would eventually win everyone over to himself. They were not denying those things that are rational, reasonable, and logical. They weren't denying those things that were historical. They weren't denying any of them. They just hated them. And they saw them as a threat to themselves. We need to remember that sometimes it doesn't matter how you are, you can present Jesus well, biblically, and the problem is the person you may be talking to is going to hate what they're hearing because their sin rules over them. In Isaiah chapter 59, Isaiah hits this. He says, for your sin a separation between you and your God. If you were to read in Isaiah 59, turn over there for just a moment. We're seeing Isaiah 59, in a sense, a picture of it being fulfilled right here. In Isaiah 59, you read this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, that it cannot hear, but your iniquities 
have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood. It was not God's hands that were weakened. It was not God's ears that weren't working. This is what the prophet says. He says, for your hands are defiled with blood. With iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to the law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They receive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adders' eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity. And deep hands, their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. This could be a poetic description of the Sanhedrin meeting to talk about Jesus in John 11. What a hopeless situation this is. Their sin and their iniquity has done this. But don't leave Psalm 59 yet. Look, look down at verse 16. This is what God says. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. This is what we see happening with the meeting of the Sanhedrin. Here, at this moment, when they are plotting to kill God's own son, God's own son, the one who is supposed to intercede, these men think that they're, think that they can control what God is doing. But what I want you to point out, so we've seen why do the nations rage? Because of their The second part of that question there is why do the people's plot see that this is in vain? There's actually two levels of irony to this meeting. These men believe they're more powerful than God. In their council, they're setting themselves against the Son of God. They're deciding how to win against God, to do this in just a way that is most advantageous for them. But here's the thing. They failed they failed incredibly, and they failed in both an earthly way and they failed in a heavenly way. They plotted in vain, 100%. So first, in an earthly way. We've got to see this. They plotted in vain. They are so scared that Jesus is going to gain followers and Rome is going to notice and decide to do something about Israel. So, so they're, basically, their policy is don't poke the bear. Let's not do anything to upset this relationship we have with Rome. But do you know what happens in the years after the crucifixion of Jesus? Do you know what happens in just the few decades after in, in Jerusalem? So in the next 40 years after the crucifixion, 
Christianity rocket around the Mediterranean world. And where does it start? It's dogs and the Jewish communities around the Mediterranean world. As many the preaching of men like Peter, men like come to their Messiah. They see Jesus for who He is and they turn to Him. And so what happens is you have Christianity growing out of the synagogues and the Jewish communities, taking with it many of the Jewish people. And so the Jews who remain and the Jews who reject Christianity over the next four decades more and more revolutionary-minded. Perhaps in part because of the many who left and became Christians. So within a few decades, this moment here, within four decades, maybe a little of this moment here, the Jews are going to revolt in Jerusalem. And Rome is going to respond by coming to Jerusalem and they are going to destroy the temple. Absolutely demolish it. They're going to run machines over it to make sure it just doesn't look like it ever even existed. Within one generation of this council, where they are coming into conflict with Rome, and the way they're going to avoid Within one generation of this council, because they killed Jesus, their plans actually fall completely apart. Their plotting against Jesus works against them. As Christianity rises, response to the crucifixion, as Christianity more and more revolutionary, Romans. that. Again, John wrote this in A.D. 90. His readers would know that too. His readers would know that there's an irony here in the, the Jewish leadership trying to protect because they're reading it within 20 years of Rome. Absolutely see the irony of this statement. This is John writing to people who already know the end of the story. And he's pointing out, this is in vain. What they did was in vain. Just like Joseph's brothers, these evil men and their plans, what do they do? They play right into God's will for evil God used for good. By the time that John writes this, the temple's gone, the Jews are reeling, and guess what is thriving in AD 90? Christianity is. I like what James Boyce says. He says, you cannot frustrate God. You can oppose Him, but only you will pay the consequences as did these men. You may oppose Him, but Christianity will spread. The Bible says many are but it is the purpose of the Lord that will be established. So we can see even just from a side of this, this was all in vain. It did not work out the way they the earthly side. Now we want to see the heavenly side of this. John points out the heavenly side of this in verses 51 and 52. We heard Caiaphas' logic 
that killing Jesus would save their nation. And we know what he meant. He meant that in a ruthless way, in a cold-hearted, calculating way. If we can get rid of this problem, then the rest of us should be fine. That's what he meant. One person dies so the rest of us don't get punished. John tells us something really fascinating here. That's what happens in verses 51 and 52. We're getting inserting his comment. Caiaphas meant one thing when he said that. What he's saying technically is... He just doesn't understand it. In the same way, never understood Jesus' teaching. In the same way that we saw from chapter 5 through chapter 10, that theme of they're so earthly-minded, they're no heavenly good. They could not catch that when Jesus was talking about bread, about bread, when he was talking about drink, when he was talking about light, he wasn't simply talking about what brightens a room. In the same way here, Caiaphas doesn't understand that what he said in an earthly way is actually Here's how D.A. Carson put it. Both Caiaphas and John understand Jesus' death to be substitutionary. Either Jesus dies or the nation dies. If he dies, the nation lives. It's his life. But while Caiaphas is thinking at the purely political level, John invites his readers to think in terms of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God is saying that they will kill Jesus and the nation will be saved. And not just saved, but he is going to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What will this murder of Jesus accomplish? on an earthly sense. But Christian, you and God have it to accomplish. In this dark, intended Christian, you fit into this passage right here. You and I, in our sin, in our rebellion against God, when we had desires that we had put up in our lives that blinded us to God, that maybe made us hate God, when we had desires that came in contrast with what Jesus wanted to do, when we were perhaps tempted to say, I just want Jesus out of my life. I want Him to stop bothering me. When we were there, it was this death, this murder, this plotting that they did that God always intended to use to gather you in and make you His child. He always intended to bring you into His family, to adopt you as one of His children. They plotted in vain, but God didn't. What God was doing here in John chapter 11 and onward, we're just, we're, we're just days away here from the crucifixion in John. 
What he planned was not in vain. He's going to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Spring Hill, Tennessee wasn't on any maps when this meeting and this council took place. It just wasn't. They're not, they're not talking about what happens in Tennessee this year, the year that Caiaphas is high priest. But God's plans included Spring Hill, Tennessee, even then. And how did they include Spring Hill, Tennessee? How did he include gathering in people from here? It was going to be through this death. This death is the call to the sheep. Your sins, they are that awful, but they're paid for. Your condemnation, it is that real. But it's taken away. There is safety there's a home. There's a family. This is the picture of a shepherd calling his sheep, gathering them in. Come where it is safe. Come where you are provided for. Come where you are led and you are cared for. Where you, are, you may lay down. Come where you may rest. That happens through the death of Christ. That happens. They plotted one thing, but God had something so much more glorious in plan. And so what you have to see is that the nations do rage. They do plot in vain. Because of the deadness that sin brings to us. The hardness of heart. But consider what God's response was in Psalm 2 after he looks at these nations that rage and plot in vain, the kings set themselves. This is what David writes in Psalm 2 in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What was his response to set his king on Zion, the holy hill? In order for him to get there and bring us along with him, he had to die for our sins first. In order for him to go to Zion and bring us with him, you and I couldn't go there. It's a holy hill. We're not holy enough to be on that hill. This is what we talked about. We talked about the gates of righteousness. That he taught. <laughs> what happens if you and I, apart from Christ, walk through the gates of righteousness? They're not righteous anymore. What happens when you and I ascend to the holy hill as we are? It's not holy anymore. In order for the king to bring you and I with him, he's got to make us holy first. In order to do that, he has to pay the price that we owe for our sin. He has to cleanse us, wash us, sanctify us. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, he's gathering in all of his people. He will use the plotting of evil men 
It will not stand against him. In fact, it may be the means by which he fulfills his plan. And that's the case here. He uses their plotting in order to bring the nations in. Not just that, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Guys, it's, this, is, this ought to be encouraging for us because there are so many who set themselves against God everywhere we turn. Who plan against Him. Who hate Him. So make sure you see today that God speaks through Caiaphas. Caiaphas had every intention to murder Jesus. He had set himself against the Son of God, and he is going to be successful. He thinks he's going to be successful here because in just a few days, a little over a week, he will successfully have put Jesus to death. He thinks he's successful here. We have to see, though, even just from John's perspective in AD 90, but how much more so now, 2,000 years later, how unsuccessful Caiaphas was. How his plans did not work out the way he intended them to work out as, at all. This is the very height, this is the climax of being so earthly-minded, you're no heavenly good. But even when the politicians and the leaders are so earthly-minded like this, it's not going to change God's will. You have to see how in vain they were. You have to see how in vain you also would be to set yourself against God. It won't work out. It simply can't work out. And that's what we're going to see now as we move toward the final week in Jerusalem. So to close, we see where, where we go. Verse 55 says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. In other words, here we go. We've seen this before in John. A festival is at hand. Everyone's talking about Jesus. The Jewish leaders want to arrest him. I mean, we've, we've actually been here before. But this one's going to be different. One reason is because Jesus has now shown his absolute power over death. That makes a difference. Two, the Sanhedrin, all the way up to the high priest, have now passed the judgment of execution. That's what we just saw. Again, in this whole process, in order for them to go to Rome and in order for them to save face with the Jews, the Sanhedrin has to have passed a judgment of execution. That just happened. We just watched it. That's cleared the way for them. We know it's different too because of the story we're going to look at next week. And a little statement that Jesus makes there about a guy named Judas Iscariot. Everything is converging now at this Passover. And so Jesus goes to a little town called Ephraim. That's where we're going to end today. We're going to end with Jesus in this little town called Ephraim. It's a little out-of-the-way place. It could be anywhere from 5 to 10 miles from Jerusalem. It's far enough away that it's not part of all the activity that happens in the week before the week of Passover. That's where we're at. Do you know what happens in the week before? Many Jews come. So again, Passover is the big feast. Everybody's coming. It's the big party. It's the big time to see everybody. People have, people have weeks before this moment. Families have gathered together. They've loaded up their stuff. They're heading to Jerusalem. 
They've made the plans for how to take care of their buildings while they're gone. They've shut stuff down. They've made arrangements. You know, we're going to go with this family. We're going to travel together. Every year on our way, we meet with so-and-so. We're going to meet up with them. All that stuff's been happening. And they come early. Many of them come early because what you have to do is you have to purify yourself before the Passover. And so John tells us while that's going on, Jesus isn't there. He's in this little town called Ephraim because his moment is coming. When he shows up, everything's going to happen. But don't miss this. Jesus does not have to show up to purify himself before the Passover. He can hang out in this little town, Ephraim. He has no need to be purified. Because what we're building up to here, the convergence that's happening, Judas is plotting and planning. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, they've now got a plan they're working on. The two of them are going to converge. They're moving towards Jerusalem. So many Jews are moving towards Jerusalem. They don't even know it yet, but they're going to be throwing palm leaves. They're going to be crying Hosanna here shortly. They're converging on Jerusalem. Gentiles, we're going to see Gentiles who are converging on Jerusalem that Jesus is going to come in contact with. But while all those, the, the, the Jews, Caiaphas, Judas, the Gentiles, while they're all converging here in the Passover, while Pilate is sitting there clueless about what he's about to do in just a, a little bit of time, what we've got to see is that the Lamb of God is moving towards this Passover as well. The Lamb, not a Lamb of God, not a Passover Lamb, but in this moment as we leave here, the Passover Lamb is going to Jerusalem to be sacrificed. Why? On earth, would you fight against him? Why on earth would you deny who he is? Why on earth would you rage and plot in vain against this one who did everything he had to do in order to make you pure, in order to adopt you as God's child? Why would you ever rage and plot against him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for how you reveal yourself to us. You reveal yourself to us in our need of you. Father, please, please break our hearts down so that we would not deny the need we have for you. It is so easy for us, Lord, in our pride and in our stubbornness, in our fear to rage and plot in vain. Help us this morning to see how vain it is and to see it would be so much better. It's so much more wonderful. It's freedom. It's life. It's eternal life. It's joy. It's hope. It's a family. It's a king who will never fail us. May we all turn to Christ this morning, the true and better Adam, and it's in his name that we live, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.